on the back table, there are several. Hello. Hey, there we are. Uh, good morning, village. Is it? Do I say good morning, village, or good morning, the village? Oh, thank you. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> the good morning, the village. <laughs> good to see y'all. It, it's. Um, I just want y'all to know. Thank you so much. Uh, you have been partners with us for almost four years now. You were one of our first churches to to come on and be partners with us. And so, thank you so much for your prayers your partnership for um, and for what you're doing. I mean, we're, I was telling Alex, we're doing the same thing. You just do it in English, I do it in Thai. We're doing cross-cultural, multi-ethnic ministry, uh, preaching the kingdom wherever we go. So thank you all for doing that, and thank you all for partnering with us as we do it in Thailand. Um, this morning, if you would go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to uh, Psalm 2. Psalm 2. It's in the Old Testament. And uh, I like big themes in the Bible. I mean, when I preach, I kind of go towards big, big themes in the Bible, and they just kind of catch me. And one of the ones that, that God has really uh, used to, uh, to focus me in ministry in Thailand is, is his kingship over all things, his kingship over the world, his kingship over us. And, um, and so Alex, Alex just talked about this. This is the part we don't really like about Jesus so much, is the kingship of Christ over our lives, the lordship of Christ in our lives. But it's all over the Bible. It's everywhere we look in the Bible. And it, it, it means a lot. And, and I want to go ahead and just challenge us, because I don't care if you're a Democrat or Republican or Libertarian or crazy. I don't care. You are not conditioned for kingship. You and I do not naturally gravitate towards a king. I mean, think about this. Our government system, whether you're Democrat or Republican, we, we, we like a vote. We like a say in everything. We, um, and the thing is, whether it's Obama or Bush or your local mayor, whoever it is, if he does a bad job, you're going to complain about that joke, aren't you? You do not like it. I mean, we, we hold them accountable, and that's good. And that's, that's the great thing about America. Alex and I were talking about this last night. It's, it's good to be in America because we have some laws. We have, we have some really great systems to kind of protect us from tyranny. In fact, is anybody here from Virginia? Okay, all right, all right. We've got a Virginian in the house. Uh, do you know what your state flag has on it? Oh, oh, he didn't pay attention to social studies, did he? That's all right. Well, I'm, let me help you out. I heard Richard Pratt use this, and it's really good. It kind, of, it kind of gives us a picture of the way we feel about kingship. So on the Virginia state flag, it's got a picture. It says Virginia on top, and then it has a woman with a spear. And her foot is on the neck of a dead king. And under it, it says, sick Semper, oh yeah, sic semper tyrannis, which is Latin for thus, always, to tyrants. I don't speak Latin, by the way. I just Googled that. And so what, it, but what does that say about the American spirit towards you? What does that say about America? It says don't mess with our women, right? <laughs> no, it, it, says, it says we don't put up with tyranny. We don't put up with bad kings. We don't put up with leadership 
that is overbearing. And that's a good thing, right? I mean, that's, we don't want that, and that's a good thing. But, that being said, I want to just challenge us to say it kind of handicaps us when we come to the Scripture sometimes because God is a king. And the kingship of Christ, sorry about that, the kingship of, of Christ is all throughout Scripture. The kingship of God over our lives is all throughout Scripture. And it's something that should challenge us and should cause us to, to think a little bit. Now, again, we serve in, in Thailand the kingdom of Thailand. When you go to Thailand, if you ever go to Thailand, you get your passport stamped and it says, the kingdom, welcome to the kingdom of Thailand. Now, again, we just don't think in terms of kingship, but, but to grow up Thai, let me just tell you about Father's Day. Now, Father's Day is December 5th, and it's the birthday of the king. The king of Thailand, I'm not going to try to pronounce his name, is uh, the longest reigning monarch on earth. Did you know that? Probably didn't know that. Most people don't. Longer than that girl in England. What's her name? Victoria England. I can't remember. I can never remember her name. But Elizabeth, that's right. I should know that. I speak English. Um, I was going to say Lucy or Susan or something. But um, it, she, she is, I think she's got a, if he dies and she reigns for five more years, then she'll catch him. But he's the longest reigning monarch in the world. And if you look at Asia, uh, you see Pol Pot in the killing fields. You see Vietnam. You see, you see all of the tragedies and atrocities that have happened in Burma and Cambodia. And, and it's, it's horrific. But then there's Thailand. And it has its share of injustice and tragedy. But largely it's been peaceful. And it's been a place where people can can find rest and refuge. And on the King's Museum, there's a plaque. And this, was, this is the, um, the objective of this king. Rama Nine is what we call him. Uh, Nai Luang. And he, he says his goal, his objective as king of Thailand is to reign in righteousness for the good of his people. Do you hear that? That's biblical. That is common grace. Right? That, that, is, that is Isaiah. Right? And he's never, probably never read Isaiah, but it's, it's what we read in the scriptures when we come to the scriptures and we see who God as king is. So ties, just, just right up front, have a little bit better picture of what it means to have a king. So when we talk about God there, we don't just talk about our personal savior, Jesus, who lives inside our hearts or anything like that. We say, God is the God is the king over all things. He's your king. He's my king. He's the great king. And when you present him like that, it makes sense to a Thai. And I, and I think, and I wish it made more sense to us, and, and living in Thailand and studying the scriptures more after being in that culture has, has caused me to see, you know, there's something great about a king. There's something wonderful about having a king like this. And that's where we're going today in the scriptures. So if you're, if you're at Psalm 2... Uh, Read along with me. Um, I'm going to read Psalm 2, and then I got, I've only got two points. And because I grew up Baptist, they both start with the same letter. Um, one is the promise of a king, and the second one is the presence of the king. The promise of the king and the presence of the king. So let's read Psalm 2 together. Hear the word of the Lord. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision, and then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son, and today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all, blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Let's pray. Worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb. That's the, that's the scene that we look forward to. That's the scene that we read in Revelation where all the nations bow down. Every knee bows and every tongue confesses. And the elders of the tribes of Israel and the cherubim and the seraphim and the angels themselves bow down. They bow down to the king the one who is slain. The one who is our warning. The one who is our refuge. The one who is our mission. The one who is our, our beloved Father. Our Savior. But also our Lord. Our covenant Lord who is faithful. Who is a provider and a protector. And so today, Lord, I pray that you would use this psalm Tell your story, the story of your people. Tell us our story. Tell us how much we need you. Tell us, tell us how much you love us. And, and show us, Father, how to walk, how to live the rest of the day, the rest of our lives uh, in reference to a king, a great king. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, raise your hand. Maybe I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Raise your hand if you've read Narnia. And if you haven't, shame on you. <laughs> read Narnia. Go home. Go wherever you go to get a book and go buy a Narnia right after this if you haven't read it and read it. Do you remember, if you've read Narnia, do you remember the way you felt the first time that when the Pevensey kids, you know, these four kids, came into the home of Mr. Beaver and he's telling them about Narnia and he says, he starts to tell them about what's wrong with Narnia and then he says, but what do you say? What Aslan is on the move. And do you remember how you felt? Because if, if you read it right, if you read it the way Lewis wrote it, you felt the way the Pevensey kids felt. And they felt horror and joy and warmth, and excitement, and anticipation, and scared, and, and a little sad for their wrongdoings. There's this mix of emotions that they felt. 
And, and if you read it that way, if you felt that way when you read Narnia for the first time, which, by the way, you need to read it, then you know how to read the Old Testament. Lewis just taught you how to read the Old Testament. Because what he was doing was he was showing you the picture of what Israel was going through. When we read Psalm 2, this is where we go. This is where we are, is we're looking at a picture of what Israel's hopes are. And so when you read Narnia, you, you realize, and, and it's explicit, all of the hopes of Narnia rest on Aslan showing up, right? If Aslan does not keep his promise, all's lost. All's lost. Now this is, this is, the, this is the Old Testament. This is the Bible. This is your life, actually. This is the way it works. If you've read Narnia, you know how to read the Old Testament now because it's about... Will he fulfill the promise? Will he keep his promise? And, and, and that's where we are in Psalm 2. So when you read Psalm 2, by the way, what is a psalm? Do you know? What are the psalms? Songs. This is the hymn book of God's people, right? Forever. And this is our hymn book. This is their hymn book. And, and what do songs do? And I, talked, I think I preached about this four years ago, so no, no one will remember what I said. But I slept, slept the whole time. Um, but what do songs do? When you were singing, like we were feeling things, right? It's not that we just get it here, but we get it here when we hear songs, when we hear songs, when we hear poetry. God gave us music, song, poetry for that reason, to make us feel. And what is he trying to make us feel here? Well, he's, the psalmist is looking back to that promise. Do you remember that promise that God made to, to David? Second Samuel 7, right? And he says, there's always going to be a man on the throne in your line. And he's looking ahead and he's saying, there's more to come. There's more to come than just David. And so when we read the Psalms, we read it knowing that this is what the people of God sang again and again, and again throughout their history. And it was, it was given to Israel to provide a hope, to show them this is your hope. God made a promise to you. And what is this promise? The promise is in verse 6. He says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And that's so final, so certain, you know? When we read God say something like that, and, and before that it says the nations were raging, the nations were scheming against God. And, and, and you feel this when you read Israel's history. The nations scheme against God's people. And what does God do? He laughs. Now this isn't like, you know, sometimes we make it kind of like a Cupid laugh or like a grandfather's old laugh. But when they talk, when, when the Bible talks about God's laughter. He only does it twice. It's mocking. It's derision. It is horrifying. Because this is not, this is not some cute old grandfather just kind of chuckling away at something we've done. But it is, it is a mocking, derisive laughter. And he's saying, I've made a promise and I'm going to keep it. I've made a promise and I'm going to keep it. And so when we read the Old Testament, God's promise, Israel's hope. We see this storyline in, in Psalm 2 that God has a king. And by the way, have you ever heard someone say, you know, 
Israel sinned because they, they wanted a king, right? That's not actually true. Israel sinned because they wanted a king like all the other nations. They wanted a, a, a pompous, majestic king. Do you remember Deuteronomy 17? This is way back before David. And God provides the laws for a king. He says, you know, you're going to have a king one day. I'm going to bring you a king. This is what he should be like. He said, he should be like you, humble. He should come from among you. He should not lift himself up above his brothers. If we can just get a politician that would do that, you know? Uh, he should only have one wife. Did David do that? No. Solomon definitely didn't do it. He should not collect horses and chariots. In other words, military might. But, as Psalm 20 said, he should trust in the name of the Lord our God. Right? This is the kind of king I'm going to bring you. This is the kind of king I want you to have. And, finally, he should be a king that he's going to copy out his own version, his own copy of the Bible, and he's going to read it every day. And this is going to be a king, a king who sets his heart on Yahweh, a king who sets his heart on God alone. But when we look at Israel's kings, we see, man, it just didn't work, did it? I mean, even with David. David was like the pinnacle and by the end of his life, he was leading his own people into idolatry. He had had a couple of wives. That whole thing with Bathsheba happened. You remember that? Like, it, it just never seemed to work out for Israel, did it? I mean, and if, you, if you're Israel, and you've got you to gotta sit there and think, and this is, the, this is the joy of reading on this side of the cross, because we, we know the end of the story. But Israel, imagine yourself in the place of Israel, seeing king after king after king be what they were. Sin. Lead Israel into idolatry. Because this is the history of Israel. This is the history of you and me, by the way. And the psalmist is saying to them, look back. Look back to the promise. And don't just look at the promise, but look at the one who promised this. And then look forward, because something Someone is coming who's more than David, who's more than Solomon, who's more than all of these kings. Great David's greater son is coming. Well, the promise was made. And, uh, and this is what you hear every Sunday here. Christ in the Old Testament. You know, this, this psalm is about Jesus. One of our seminary professors at RTS Jackson um, was telling the story. He's... he's uh, I think he's Lebanese, but he escaped to America, converted from Islam to Christianity, and he uh, he started this thing called Children of Abraham, where they sent out these magazines to Arabic-speaking people all over America. And he got this Arabic scholar to, to kind of um, contribute. They were looking for Arabic scholars to contribute to the magazine. And he said, okay, good, do, do a, an article on Psalm 1. And it, he said he wrote this beautiful article, this very scholarly academic article about the, the Arabic language in Psalm 1 and, and, and God's faithfulness in Psalm 1. And then, and then he said, okay, do Psalm 2. And so this Arabic scholar who was a Muslim calls him back like a week later and he says, what is Jesus doing here? What is Jesus doing in this psalm? And, and when we read the Old Testament, when we read 
Psalm 2 especially, we see the promise was made and the promise was kept in Jesus. This is what the apostles talked about, guys. This is when, when the apostles go and preach to crowds. You know what they were accused of? In, in Acts uh, 7, was it 7 or 7, 17? Paul and Silas are preaching, and they get charged with, not with preaching about a personal Lord and Savior, which he is our personal Lord and Savior and all that stuff. They get charged with preaching another king. What they're saying is, He's bre- they're breaking the laws of Caesar because they're saying there's another king and that this king is Jesus. And then what, what was John, remember John's purpose statement in, in uh, John 21. He says, the reason why I'm writing this book is so you may believe that this Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. This word in Psalm 2, and I hate to do I hate to be one of these guys that uses like Hebrew in his sermons. I don't really know Hebrew that well, but I, I have like the Bible software, so I got this out. Um, but it says, in verse 2, it says, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his... Does anybody know what the Hebrew word for that is? Anointed one? Anybody know that? The word is Mashiach. Mashiach. So when this Arabic scholar saw this word Mashiach, which means Messiah, what the New Testament uh, New Testament translate Christos, Christ. What what John is saying to us in this gospel is he's saying the one that the psalmist was talking about, the great King who was to come, he came. The promise was kept. The promise was fulfilled in this Jesus. The Messiah, the King, the great King came. And we've got to ask the question, though, why is this important to us? Because we do live on this side of the cross. Jesus already came. But there's also a sense in which do you hurt? Do you struggle? Is there injustice in your neighborhood? Are there people who don't know Jesus? Do politicians lie to us? Do our cars break down? You know, does life happen? If we are believers in this gospel, then we're still waiting on the promise. We're still waiting on the full, perfect fulfillment of the promise. And that fulfillment is this. His presence. So let's move to the presence of the king. Um, I, I did mention I live in Thailand. Uh, we, we have about a coup a year. You know what a coup is. It's like a military attack. We have about a coup a year. Seriously, it happens. Um, but they're usually pretty peaceful. Um, Thais are really peaceful, kind of laid-back folks. Um, so they'll go and, and, and protest for a while, and then they'll be like, oh, man, it's hot. Let's go home. And that's what happens. I'm, I'm dead serious. That's what happens. Well, there was one in 1992. It was particularly bloody. We must have had a cold snap or something because everybody stayed out protesting for a while. And, um, and they, they went out and protested and there was tear gas and there was like mortars and, and people were shooting. And actually, the prime minister had ordered the police to start shooting into the crowds. And there was two polar 
kind of figures, the prime minister and this military leader. And they were this really ugly public war that was going on. And the king of Thailand, by the way, has no power. It's a constitutional monarchy. That means he doesn't have any actual power, but his people love him. They love him. And the king had finally gotten enough, and he said, he called the two people, uh, Suchinda and Chamlong were their names, he called them, these opposition leaders, to have a televised meeting with himself. And it's beautiful. It's, you can still look at it today where the king, and you don't, you don't stand in the presence of the king, you're lower than he is. And it's beautiful because the king is on his throne and they're kneeling before him on the floor. And he said, stop it. And it stopped. It ended. That was it. Because the presence and the word of the king changes everything. You do not disobey the king. When you meet the king, it changes everything. Ask Isaiah. Ask Isaiah. Remember Isaiah 6? What happens in Isaiah 6? Isaiah, this righteous prophet of God, righteous prophet of Israel, he comes into the throne room and he sees the Lord high and lifted up, exalted. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, is what the angels and the, cher- and the cherubim are saying. And what does he do? He falls down in the presence of the king. He falls down and he says, Woe is me. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people, an unclean people. The presence of the king changes everything. When the king shows up, and this happens whenever Jesus shows up in your neighborhoods, this happens whenever Jesus shows up in Thailand, whenever Jesus shows up in our ministries, when the king comes, it changes everything. And there are at least three ways. And I'm going to uh, take them from the text real quick because I, I think we're almost out of time here. But one thing that we find that the presence of the king implies is this warning. You know, Alex mentioned in, this, uh, in his little homily about baptism that we don't necessarily like the lordship of Christ. We like the saviorness of Christ. We like that he's our, our lord and sa- our savior who loves us. We, we, we go towards the love and we, we miss the warning sometimes because we don't like it. We miss the kingship because we don't want a king. You know? We want to vote. <laughs> we we want to say in what we do. I mean, even, be honest, guys, I don't care whether you voted for Obama or Bush, whoever, but the first time they did something you didn't like, you felt pretty free to criticize them, didn't you? You felt pretty free to be like, that joker's messing up now. You know, we, we are like that. That's our Americanness coming out. We are democratic. We, are, we get a vote. Jesus says, I'm the king. I am the Lord. If you ever read J.I. Packer, if you ever get a chance to read J.I. Packer's Growing in Christ, he has this great quote about, he says, the kingship of Christ in our lives is regal, absolute, Universal, personal, intimate. He said it is, it reaches into every nook and cranny of our lives. But it's also, he's also King Jesus, the shepherd. And we're going to get that in a minute. But there's warning. In the passage here, 
the psalmist gives warning. He says, Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? And he warns people. He says at the end, Therefore, O kings, therefore, most powerful people on the face of the earth, you who have the highest intellects and the most power, be wise. Be careful. Because this is the consuming fire. This is the king. And you bow before the king. This is the one to whom every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. He doesn't bargain. He's the Lord. Secondly, we find refuge. And we we confess this just a minute ago. Do you sin? Do you have guilt? Do you have a past? Do you have baggage? Because every one of us do. He's refuge. And this is a beautiful thing. This is a beautiful thing because there is no there is no other sacrifice for sin. You know that, right? When we go to Thailand and preach the gospel there, when you go across the street and preach the gospel there, you're taking the fact that there is no other sacrifice for sin. There is no other way to find refuge from sin other than this one. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? This is our king. And only a king can be a kingly refuge, can be a sovereign refuge, not just a little refuge from a little sin, but he is the king who is a sovereign refuge from your very great sin, from my very great sin. And thirdly, because I'm a missionary, I've got to go here. It means mission. It means looking out. Now, three weeks ago, uh, three weeks ago and four hours ago, my baby girl, my first baby girl was born, and uh, uh, Abigail Bree Adams, she's back there. Uh, if you want to talk about her more, I'll talk about all day after the service, if you want to just like chat about her. I, I was thinking the other day, I posted about 900 pictures on Facebook, and they're all the same picture. <laughs> it's the same one over and over. But I don't care. I love it. Um, and the thing is, is it's precious to me. That's why I love to talk about it, right? She is precious to me. She is the thing that I want to talk about with everybody, with anybody, with anybody or anything, as long as it stands there long enough. I want to talk about my baby girl because she's precious to me. Now this is the way when we read the gospel, when we read Psalm 2, when we read God saying, as for me, I've set my king, the one who will rule over all the earth, who will break the nations with a rod of iron. By the way, that's Revelation 21. That's Jesus explicitly. Break the nations with a rod of iron and rule over them with an iron scepter. This Jesus should be so precious to us, not just because it's our duty, but because he loves you. He loves me. We just sang he loves us, precious Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus. We just sang that. He should be precious to us. And the things that are precious to us, we talk about them. All I talked about until I became a Christian was Georgia football and Herschel Walker. Because I converted, actually, from Herschel Walker to Jesus. And, uh, 
But it was precious. And those are the things that you talk about, right? Think about what are the things that you talk about. Because if you love it, you're going to talk about it. And you're going to annoy someone about it too, probably. Brothers and sisters, let's strive to make the king precious. And we do that by coming to worship, coming to the word, being with each other. And we do it by telling folks about it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the king, the one who has came, who has come to make sacrifice for our sins, who is not just a savior and not just a shepherd. And you are, and we thank you for that. You are our beloved father, our beloved shepherd, but you are also the king of all ages, reigning as we sing sometimes, ineffably sublime. You are ineffably sublime. You are beautiful, majestic. And you are holy, holy, holy. We pray that you would make yourself, make your gospel, make the declaration of your kingship precious to us so that more than the little things in our lives, even more than the big things like my baby girl or Uh, our kids or our jobs or whatever, you would be the precious thing for us. That we would, wherever we go, we would proclaim the gospel of the kingdom as you came through. And so, Father, we, um, we ask that you would change our hearts. And as we pray for the nations, whether it's uh, Thailand or uh, the Middle East, or, or whether it's our own nation, which um, we need you, King Jesus. We ask that you would make us willing ambassadors, servants of the King, who are dedicated to the message of the King and who are given to lives following the King. We ask this in your holy name. Amen.